We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When we start to think about what we want out of life as, as a parent, as an individual, as a member of society, that then helps us make those boundaries that are a lot more clear about how we want to live life rather than just letting life come at us and feel the obligation to do what other people say we should be doing. You know, our aha moments happen when we're in the shower, when we're out for a hike, when literally the first 10 seconds I try to meditate, I've just decided to have a notepad next to me because it's like a flood of ideas come in or things I need to do that I had forgot about. I slow down enough to realize, oh, there's a lot of clutter in there. So to me, one of the biggest lessons is the, the best thing we can do for ourselves is to figure out how to slow down so that we can do our best work when it is time to sprint full tilt. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Joe Sanek. Thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, Jari, thanks for having me. Yeah, appreciate your time today. You are the founder of Practice of the Practice and author of Thursday is the New Friday, which is super interesting because there is a lot of interest around, I don't know, like being more efficient, taking more time off, like having a four day work week as opposed to the crazy stuff we do here in the state sometimes. And so I just want to like dig into all that and what, you know, practice with the practice is all about. You have a podcast to that name as well. You know, it's, it's super interesting how a lot of this sort of you know, consultants, therapists, and coaches, and all that sort of world has a lot of really great like overlap. And I'm just super interested to talk about that. But before we get to all of that, as I always like to say, since I'm lazy and only have one question for the podcast, <laughs> tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah. You know, I was working full time at a community college and I was a therapist trained very Typically, you work at a nonprofit, then you level up into community mental health, then you end up hopefully getting one of those golden handcuffs jobs with a pension, which, which I finally got, and just realized I wanted to start a side gig counseling practice to pay off student loan debt, to start to pay off a car. Really wasn't thinking of it as a career move, but got this practice going, and after a little bit of time, realized, you know, I'm full, as full as I want for a side gig. And so I hired a 1099 contractor and then hired another. And next thing you know, I had a group practice and I had no idea what I was doing. My parents both worked for the school system and, you know, I was always told get good grades and then you'll get hired by somebody smarter than you to you know, pay you a good wage. And so the whole entrepreneurial thing was nothing I had any training in. So 
I started listening to a couple of podcasts and really enjoyed it and realized if I start a podcast, I can pick people's brains and not have to pay them. So I literally just started inviting an SEO expert. Oh no, don't, expert. don't, <laughs> don't tell people the secret. Don't tell people the secret. <laughs> And literally, it. it was it was for my own learning. Like, hey, I'm having trouble with my WordPress theme. I don't even know what a plugin is. What's a plugin? Just like really just basic questions of business. And people liked it. At the time, there were no podcasts about the business of private practice. So I'm trained as a psychologist, you know, counselors, therapists. We don't get that training. And so from day one, we were the number one podcast for counselors in private practice. And now we're the oldest one. We may not be the number one. I think we still are number one. We get 60 to 100,000 listens a month. So it's pretty good. And, and so 60 to 100,000? Yeah, 60,000 to 100,000 listens a month. Yeah. That's amazing. Doing four episodes a week. We already sold out the year of sponsorships and we have membership amazing. communities for people from the moment that they want to start a private practice all the way through selling it, doing e courses, you know, going national, wow. getting TED Talks. So for me, it just has been this really interesting journey of, kind of following my own entrepreneurial journey. I was a few steps ahead of everyone else. So I sold my practice in 2019. That gave me a lot of credibility with people to have started a practice, grown it, then sold it to go through that life cycle, started investing in you know other things like Airbnbs and still doing this. And so with my own audience, it's been just really interesting to you know, grow with them. So first they were starting solo practices, then they got full and wanted to start group practices. So we had offerings there. Then they fill those up and they want to go do public speaking. So we help them there. So it's been nice to just have our products be defined from our audience and to say, Here, here's what we want. And us to say, yeah, that's in our wheelhouse or no, that's not something we want to build. Wow. Wow. It's amazing. Like, yeah, my, my, my mom and dad were not really entrepreneurial. They did said the same thing. Okay. Good grades. Someone will hire you. It'll be great. But I grew up in Silicon Valley and I'm like, no one in my college, let's go, we're all going to startups, right? Yeah. <laughs> sort of like, you know what I mean? It's like you get four kind of like not peer pressure, but why would that, why would I go work at United Airlines when I could go work at a startup? You know? Well, yeah. And I think that, that, that just points to that the peer group around you often informs what potential is out there. So, you know, as I've leveled up, some of my friends, I wouldn't say my friendships have leveled up. I still have a ton of friends from college that, you know, have traditional jobs, but you know, to intentionally surround myself with people that are investing differently than what I know, thinking through things, people that are founders of startups, you know, to become friends with those types of people, things I never would have even thought of as an option. They're like, oh, yeah, it's super easy. Just do these steps. And similar to a podcast, when you're surrounded by people you just enjoy hanging out with, you know, you're going to share tips with each other because you want to see your friends be successful. Oh, totally. I mean, one of the reasons I started the show I mean, it's based on the book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, was because I, you know, this is a lonely job or gig or, you know, calling, whatever you want to call it. And it's, it was always like, you know, you really need help. Like, there, like what's great about what you've done building, you know, practice of the practices, you know, like counselors don't get that business training, not a lot of, not a lot of people in like the certified professional things like doctors, lawyers, counselors, like it just to name, you know, veterinarians, like the, the business is not taught to them. But then again, they're in this thing where like, you're going to start your practice, you're going to do this, you're going to whatever. And it's not, it's not that it's hard. It's just a different mindset. And it's just so interesting how you've sort of evolved it because 
one of the things that entrepreneurs that you learned quickly is, you know, give the people what they want. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, uh, and they'll, they'll probably tell you, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, Steve Jobs, notwithstanding, like people don't know what they want, but you know, you're building a business that's helping people practice better the, not only the art, but the business aspect of what their, what their, their life calling is. So I'm curious, you know, what were some of the things other than, you know, what, you know, listening to the people that you're serving that you sort of learned along the way as you were building this into what it is today? Yeah, I think a lot of you know, the book Thursday is the New Friday comes out of just my personal experience of working less. And so when I left the college to go full-time in private practice and to do practice the practice full-time, I decided right away that first summer that I was just going to work four days that summer per week and to just see, do it as an experiment for the summer. And every month was the best financial month that I had had throughout that summer. So June was better than any other month. July was better than June. August was better than July. So right away, it was very clear that something was happening. I didn't really dissect a lot of that until I started looking at the book. But just that idea that the hustle culture and, you know, working all the time and, you know, Gary V, I respect him in a lot of ways, but, you know, he's like, I haven't taken a Saturday off since high school. And it's like, well, that's just really sad to me, you know? So it's that idea of really, to me, the key to our best creativity that both the neuroscience and just basic logic tells us is that if we work less, if we're less stressed out, if we're not backed into a corner and just feeling like we have to do everything all the time, we can make better decisions. You know, our aha moments happen when we're in the shower, when we're out for a hike, when literally the first 10 seconds I try to meditate, I've just decided to have a notepad next to me because it's like a flood of ideas come in or things I need to do that I had forgot about. It's like the brain is saying like, don't meditate, but it's just, you know, I slow down enough to realize, oh, there's a lot of clutter in there. So to me, one of the biggest lessons is the, the best thing we can do for ourselves is to figure out how to slow down so that we can do our best work when it is time to sprint full tilt. You know, this is really apropos because I was just on my therapy call with my therapist mm. about an hour before it's, and the topic is how to slow down, how to save energy, you know, how to, how to, cause I'm, you know, Silicon Valley hustle culture. Like it's literally ingrained in my brain and I have a hard, hard, hard time not working hard. Um, mm -hmm. and it's just, it's, it's one of those things where you are so right. Cause he's like, well, when do you get your best ideas? And I said, you know, when I'm running, working out or in the shower, and he's like, well, you know, maybe you should do that more often. It's just because, you know, like <laughs> have some time for that reflection. And, you know, this year is one of those years where I'm trying to figure that out more because you're right. It's, I don't think, it, I mean, depending on where you're at in your career and what you have to learn, then, then maybe this is different advice. But if, you know, if, if you really know what you're doing and, and you're building a business and you're building a process and you're like, okay, it, it, the separation from it is super beneficial. And I think generally in life, and I'm just curious, you know, obviously you're, you're trained for this and you sort of know, understand the psychology of it. H how do we as entrepreneurs Again, this isn't a medical advice, just generally, like yeah. from your book and, you know, tell, uh, how do we get in the habit of separating that? Because I agree with you. It's like, you're just going to be better 
Like you just are. It's yeah. just hard for us, especially younger folk to be like, no, I got to work. I got to do the Gary V thing. I got to work seven days a week. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would look first big picture and say, like we know from the research that work will expand to the time given. So Parkinson's law taught us that that work's going to expand to the time given. When you're in college, you remember you have an essay due the next day, you pump that thing out. It may not be your best work, but you get it done. Maybe you get a C or a B, but you get it done. And if you take three months to do it, you're going to go over and over and over it. The other side of Parkinson's law that to me is important to note is something that's rarely discussed, and that's the natural bloating of systems. So Parkinson noticed that in the British Navy, he did this whole study on it, that basically if any sort of sign-off, paperwork, anything was added to the system, it was near impossible to pull it back out. Once it was in, it was staying in. What, what focusing on doing less work does is if you have 20 tasks you could be doing, but you only have time to do 10, you're going to focus on the things that are going to give you the best ROI. They're going to give you the most happiness. They're going to be the least draining to your energy. So, so the things that rise to the top, it then begs the question of those other 10 things, like why are you doing them at all? Now, maybe they're essential to your business and that's an opportunity to train some people and you may have that mindset of nobody can do it like me. Well, that's, that's true, yet you can hire people that maybe you could do it better. My executive assistant that checks my email, and does she's the glue of the organization, she organized in the first weekend that she, she worked over the weekend, that first weekend she was hired and just tore through my email she had it more organized in one weekend than I had had in 10 years. Um, she had it itemized and you're only going to look at this section, Joe. I made it so you only see Joe's to-do list. To me, it looked like I had five emails, even though there were hundreds of other emails. So people will do it better for you than you even could do it yourself. So once you do that, then it's a lot easier to understand you working less is actually the key to your success. So one way that I do that with consulting clients is we do this thing called the plus one minus one exercise. And so whether or not you are working five days a week plus a side gig or you have a four day you know, work week, it doesn't matter where you're at. This is a very simple exercise to do. So you look at your coming weekend and the mindset that we want to shift is that the weekend is not recovery. It's not going, oh man, that was a terrible week. I got to recover from that week. Instead, we want to view it as preparing us for the next week? How do we best help ourselves on the weekend to have our brains rest, to be prepared going into that next week? So the plus one minus one exercise, all we do is we brainstorm what we could add to our weekend that we could test out that could in some way make our weekend more robust for us, that we would enjoy it more, feel more calm, whatever. So maybe it's, I'm going to tell the kids that I'm going to read a fiction novel next to the fireplace with my green tea on Saturday morning for an hour. Do not talk to me unless you're bleeding but I need this. And if you have a partner, watch those kids. So help me if they talk to me, like I'm going to be frustrated. And let's just see if this one hour test makes you feel like your weekend was a little bit more, you know, self-care. And then we're also going to do a minus one. What's one thing we can remove from our weekend that could potentially help us? So maybe like for me, grocery shopping. I, I hate grocery shopping. I usually squeeze it in somewhere. Maybe you take that off of your to-do list and you have your groceries delivered this weekend and just see, do you feel better this weekend just from spending that little bit of extra money? So as I've started to just test things in and view a lot of this as just an experiment, you know, even as we're recording this, we're early in the year, people often have resolutions. This year, I wrote a big blog post about how I'm against resolutions. I want you to experiment. Yeah, go to the gym. If after two weeks, you don't want to go to the gym, don't freaking go to the gym. 
Like if you want to work out, find something you like. Like I joined a curling team that that was fun. It was just random. And I'm like, I don't like working out, but I'm working out. I'm like scrubbing the ice, you know? So find something that does work for you and allow that just investigation to reveal things. Wow. I mean, this is like the perfect conversation for me to have right now because I've been literally talking about this with, with my therapist about this idea of experimenting with what's going to give you joy or, mm. I mean, I, I, this whole plus one minus one thing is fascinating because I never thought about the weekend being prepare for the next week, but I liked that kind of heuristic because Usually I'm exhausted by the end of the week and, and don't, I'm not my best self. And, and what I've found, because I've, you know, I've actually been sick for the last couple of weeks, is that sickness makes you prioritize what's important because you just mm -hmm. don't have enough energy to do all the BS. And it's fascinating because, you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've just been what do I got to do today to get through the day? I can't, I can't worry. I mean, like the worry and the, the, you know, another thing that's, that's a challenge when it comes to all this is comparisons like, oh, where am I compared to other things? Because that's just, again, another, is that a waste of time? Is, you know, whatever. A lot of us entrepreneurs do that. So, wow. So, so this whole idea of Parkinson's law, I've heard of this before. And I'm assuming you've talked about it in your book. I'm I'm just curious, like, are there any other laws like that? And any other things that are kind of like that we can, like, just have people think about? I I really I really like this plus one minus one. But I, like, are there any more of those little nuggets? Of course, don't give away the whole book. Go buy oh, the I, book, please. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think so the book kind of walks through the the model of starting internally, like where are you at? So the first third is all about your internal inclinations. And there's three internal inclinations that successful entrepreneurs have that either come naturally to you or don't. And it's not pass fail. It's not like, oh, don't be an entrepreneur if you don't have any of these. But it's if this is where your starting point is, here's some ways to build those inclinations more. Then we move into slowing down and evaluating how well we're slowing down really to kind of like till up that ground. And then the third part is how do you sprint full tilt when you are working? And so for me, when I am working, I'm working hardcore, but typically I only work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday from 9.30 a.m. till 3.30 p.m. Now that was defined because 2020, I went on a road trip during the pandemic, got a camper and road schooled my kids. We went to, I don't know, 20 or so national parks around the country, had a bathroom that we were pulling. So we never had to go to public bathrooms or restaurants or any of that stuff. But in the midst of that, their mom decided to leave the family and to stay in California and totally like just left the kids in me. So in that process, I was heartbroken. I was blindsided, was on a road trip in the middle of nowhere without friends or family. And I had had to be very clear with my work boundaries because national parks have zero Wi-Fi, even though we had five different forms of Wi-Fi. I could not work for the you know five to seven days we were in a national park. And so I was already in that rhythm of, okay, I'm going to work really hard and then we're going to disappear for a week. So my team was used to that. They were prepared for that. I come home and I've got two heartbroken kids that now see their mom for a handful of days a month if she flies in. And so for me, that sets a very clear boundary of every single morning, 
I want to walk my daughter to school. We live a block and a half away from the school. My sister lives in my neighborhood. I intentionally bought a house in the same neighborhood. So we meet up with my nieces and we all walk to school together like it's, you know, some 1950s movie. But walking my daughter to school every morning and picking her up from school every afternoon to me is part of being the father and the support that I want to be. So that's very clearly defined that if she starts school at nine and I walk home and I don't want to just have to dive into a meeting the very second that I'm home, you know, 930 is when I'm going to start, 330 is when I'm going to end. So when we start to think about what we want out of life as, as a parent, as an individual, as a member of society, that then helps us make those boundaries that are a lot more clear about how we want to live life rather than just letting life come at us and feel the obligation to do what other people say we should be doing. Hmm. Just going to let that sink in <laughs> for a little <laughs> bit because uh, it's pretty heavy. It's, it's interesting how, yeah, like it, you had limit, you had, you had, well, you had self-imposed limitations as well as physical limitations. Like, you know, wow, that's so interesting. Man, I, this is just, <sighs> now I got to like read your book like in a day so I can see some <laughs> of this stuff too. You know, I haven't, haven't picked it up yet. I do plan on doing that because this is so top of mind for me. And a lot of entrepreneurs have the opposite to be honest, the opposite attitude, the opposite mindset. And I think a lot of the angst and a lot of the burnout that, that we experience as entrepreneurs is because we're not replenishing the well. We're not like taking the time to be present and really take stock of, of, of life. And is it, is it hard? To, is it hard to start this? Is it like, what do you, what would you recommend some experiments or, how do you, other than reading the book and kind of going yeah. through it, but I mean, are there some, some things that people can just try out? Cause sometimes it's just hard to start, you know? Yeah. Well, I think seeing some success with being more efficient with your time then fuels more success in that area. So one, one little kind of neuroscience hack that I learned about in reading the research to write the book was if we slow down first. So, you know, sometimes we think we have to take, you know, a full day off. We got to take Fridays off. But there actually was a study out of the University of Illinois that looked at what's called vigilance decrement. So vigilance, how well we pay attention to something. Decrement, meaning breaking down over time. So the idea was that our energy levels and our ability to pay attention would go down over time in a day, and then that'd get replenished by our sleep. Uh, so it was like a glass of water that once it's poured out, it you can't replenish it. So they tested that out. What they did is they brought in students to sit at a computer, and they'd give them a random four-digit number. So say it was... Four, two, three, one. And they look at this computer and all these random four digit numbers come up. And when their four, two, three, one comes up, they hit a button. Super boring for an hour, literally just watching numbers. The beginning, they're very successful, paid attention. By the end, they missed their number quite a few times. So they proved there's vigilance decrement. So they wanted to test that against a micro break. So at the 20 minute mark, they gave them a one minute break. They said something like, Hey, we just got to give you a one minute break. That's part of like, you know, standard protocol or like go, go sit in the lobby. We got to put you on a different computer, something that interrupted it. They got out of that environment, but didn't go outside. They didn't read magazines or go on their phone. Literally a one minute break, go have a seat for a minute, stand up, do jumping jacks, whatever you want. 
came back, did another 20 minutes, had one more micro break uh, of a minute, and then had a 20 more, 20 more minutes. So 60 minutes with two micro breaks. They found there was zero vigilance decrement as a result of two one-minute breaks. So what that shows us is that sometimes it feels like this huge monumental task to be more efficient with how we're working. But the reality is, is the neuroscience points us to all sorts of things that can help us actually get more done when we're working. So as I was writing the book, I was learning these things and applying them directly to writing the book. One thing is changing our environment for specific things. So for example, this jacket I wore for every single one of the 200 podcast interviews that I did for Thursday is the new Friday. So I did 200 podcast interviews in two months in the lead up to the launch of the book. I had a white wow. shirt that I, that I wore for every single episode to have wow. consistent look, but to also teach my brain that this is the interview outfit. So these things like that, like when I was writing the book in my office here, I brought a different chair in that I only sat in to write the book. I had different lights I brought in that I only turned on when I was writing the book. And I had a writing playlist that I only listened to when I was writing the book. I had these black headphones that I only used when I was writing the book and I used AirPods for everything else. So changing the light, changing the environment, prepping our brains for flow state can then help us drop into projects much differently than if we just keep everything the same. So even at the end of my day when I was writing, I have two giant whiteboards on my wall. I would brainstorm all the things that were for the next chapter. And so I would say, say the next chapter was on curiosity. That's one of the chapters. I would just say, okay, with, with a clean brain, what is what prompts curiosity? I was like, oh, curiosity killed the cat. I hadn't thought of that. That wasn't in my outline. This, and I'd say like, what questions do I have? And I'd let it simmer for that week. So when I came back in, I was ready to go. I'm like, I want to find out the story of, you know, curiosity killed the cat. I want to find out about all these things. And so you drop right back into that activity instead of starting with a blank screen. So all this neuroscience can help us actually get more done when it is time to work. So then if we're smart, we don't just overwork and find more things to do. We see that pattern where when we slow down, it actually makes us even more effective with shorter hours. Yeah, yeah. I There's a bunch of, when I was writing my books, there's a bunch of hacks like that where I wouldn't, like if I was writing a chapter, I was writing, you know, sitting down to write, I would stop before I was finished just because I knew that I could pick it up the next day and not, you know, I, I had, I had the thread that was going through. I didn't do the whole thing of like, you know, outlining, but I found that that helps with writer's block because you've always got, now, another one is like these snippets, like, Hey, here's a snippet. Here's an idea. And you just sort of have this like bundle or bus basket of these snippets that allow you to sort of pick things up. That's so interesting. Like really just setting the stage and setting the mood and like the training your brain to, oh, I am now ready to write. I'm now ready to work. I'm now ready to take a break. I mean, are there things that you do when you want to take a break? Uh, as an example, do you like take the jacket off? Take, you know, like, yeah. is there, is there like a, another, like, it, like, yeah. How, how does that work on the break side? Yeah. So I think this points to a lot of people working from home and not being clear kind of as what's your workspace and what's not. And, and you don't have to have a dedicated room. Like I have a sound studio here cause you know, I'm a full-time podcaster, but you know, there's one chair that I sit in when I'm going to be not in this office and it's at my dining room island and I sit there 
every single time. I don't sit on the couches. I, I keep those spaces as being recreation, non-work areas because the brain can get confused in the same way that it's really bad for you to read in bed or to play on your phone in bed. Your brain then associates being awake with being in bed. And that's the worst thing. You should you know, be sleeping in bed. And so if you're going to be on your phone right before bed, which isn't smart, but if you are, at least sit on a couch, at least sit on the floor, like something that's not your bed. Same sort of idea. If you're working from your couch and then you're watching TV on your couch and you're hanging out with your kids on the couch, the brain gets a little confused and it's harder to drop in to your work state because you know all that other stuff is associated with that space. Yeah, the associative part of it, I think, is pretty powerful. I know that like when I used to do a lot of like triathlons, I'd have like my favorite pair of socks or my favorite mm -hmm. like, singlet or like there were things that you're like, okay, I'm now, you know, like I would have my favorite like snack, you know, like I, on I would only eat this when I was doing an event because I just like, I'm in event mode. Um. Interesting. Interesting. So for practice of the practice, now that you've got you know, the podcast and sort of educational opportunities for people to learn, and how, how does this apply to your specific, what you're doing with, with helping the counselors and everything? Because obviously they're all trained in the brain and they're in neuros, mm -hmm. at least most of them. Do you get the same kind of pushback? Do you get the same kind of, you know, I know, you know, we're all people, but I wonder if it's just a little different take on it because they've got, I mean, they clearly should know, but like anything, like we all know we should take a break, but we don't. How do, mm -hmm. how, how, how do, how does like a group like that embrace this and figure that out? Yeah, I think that they're very aware of their own self-care and what they need. They don't always apply it as much. I'd say the challenges that most therapists and coaches tend to, to have is more along the kind of the lines of kind of imposter syndrome. They're so used to being told, you know, sure, you get your master's degree, but then you need to have an internship and then you need to have your pre-license. And then someday, you know, two or three years after graduate school, you'll be fully licensed. But then, you know, you might be in supervision that it, then you got to have the specialty training in, in these areas. It's almost there, there's this whole educational system that does help therapists be very trained and highly qualified and all of that. But it also leads to like, when am I good enough to just run my business and be good for a while? And so they need that kind of self-confidence to say, statistically, 8% of the U.S. has a master's degree. And, you know, of 100 people in a room, if eight of them have master's degrees, statistically, you'll be the only one with a mental health master's degree. So in a room of 100 Americans, most likely you're the smartest person in a room the day you graduate around mental health. And so just even helping them realize, you know a lot. There's a lot of armchair experts out there that have read a few self-help books and are doing killer podcasts, you know, and you are a trained expert in this area. So that's where I see the challenge being for them. And then just the knowing, like, how do I do this? Um, thinking like a business person, so many of them went into therapy because they just want to help people. And there's been this kind of money mindset thing where if you make money, you're somehow evil or bad. And so overcoming that and being okay with raising your rates and, you know, being full. Um, yeah, just yesterday I was doing a consulting call with a guy and he's got a full-time job, a part-time private practice. It's 15 hours a week. So the guy's working almost 60 hours a week. And he's charging $75 per session, which is so below market rate. And you know, I just said to him, you know, if that's what you feel like your mission is, 
that's fine. But really ask yourself, do you want my business to be where I volunteer? Because I personally would rather volunteer where I want to. And if I get sick of that volunteering to then go volunteer somewhere else. Let's just have your business be your business. And you can choose to lower rates or take on you know, a handful of clients that are lower rates. But let's not have that be your business model. And so really helping people understand you can have the ethics. You can help the world in the way that you want to help the world. And you can also make money at it. I think that's where probably the biggest challenges are for most therapists. Well, that I think is a big challenge for a lot of people. Yeah. The money mindset, especially consultants or sidekickers. I've had this problem for my whole life. Like, like let's mm. be pricing something that you're going to sell. You know, you're kind of like, is it really worth that? Mm. And, and it's interesting. How, how do you, what, what are some of the techniques that you, you, you use for, I mean, for this particular group, because I think it applies to lots of groups that feel, you know, that I always say they feel icky about money. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, I, money, uh, it's like, it's like a dirty word, like authors, like some of the authors that, that I know, marketing and money is a dirty word. They all want to be successful. They all want to be on Oprah. All, but for the life of them, being an entrepreneur is just like, it's like grinding teeth. It's like chalk nails on a chalkboard. Mm-hmm. How, how do you get them through, through this and get them to change and shift their mindset? Because I think that would apply to a lot of people. Yeah, I think that around the pricing, we have this process called the 3P process that we use for any new product idea, where we reach out to our ideal customers and we just offer to do a 15 to 20 minute phone call. I mean, a lot of this is kind of the minimum viable product type of thing. But in that process, we then walk through three Ps. The first one is the pain. So, for example, when we were starting Next Level Practice, that's our membership community. It's $159 a month. We've got few hundred people in that and they get trainings and stuff. But when we were thinking about launching a membership community at that time, our tripwire was a $17 one year email. You got an email every week for a year walking you through how to start a practice. So I'm thinking, okay, the next step up would be like 29 bucks a month. So I go into these interviews, you know, what's it like to start a practice? And people are explaining their, their pain around that. You know, I, I feel like it's been done before, but I just don't know how to do it. It seems like it should be simple and just walking through all the pain. Then you reflect back that pain to them to make sure it's accurate and say, if there's a product that was your perfect product that solved that pain, or at least made some big improvements on it, like what would that look like? So people started outlining, well, there'd probably be a weekly live meeting. Um, there'd be small groups, there'd be accountability partners, there'd be e-courses, there'd be you know some sort of support services for websites and things like that. And I'm just thinking, man, if this is $29 a month, like we cannot do that. And then I said, you know, the, the final P, uh, you reflect it all back. You, here, here's what you said for your pain. Here's the product that you outlined. How much would you pay for that? What's the price that you pay for that? And overwhelmingly, people said, I don't know, about the cost of a counseling session. So like 100 bucks a month or so. And right away, I'm like, oh, okay. Like, that's way different. And then the final question that we've added is, if we doubled that price, like what would have to be included to make it a no-brainer decision for you? So then you really know what people value. So it could be oh man, if I could just have like a 15 minute consulting call with you, or if I had some blueprint that outlined X, Y, and Z, then you really find out what they, they absolutely want to have. Next, you just send an email to that group of people, BCC everybody. So it's just one email, give a summary of it, and then have some sort of early opt-in, usually at about half the price. So we started at $55 a month for our first cohort, said we're going to screw things up. And we went through, I think, 10 webinar platforms in the first month. There were so many just tech snafus at the time. 
but they knew they were getting it for 55 bucks a month and they were founding members. So what this does is it then has them help determine the price, but also even more than that, you can rule people out. If you email your list of a thousand people to try to get 20 calls saying it's not a sales call, it's literally picking your brain and nobody does anything that tells you you have a disengaged audience. So you need to focus on that before you ever sell anything. If you then get on that call and then they outline something that you have no interest in building, then you have an audience that doesn't match what you want to build and you need to do some repositioning. Uh, if they're too cheap, you've got a bunch of cheapskates. Like if they're like, you know, I'd only spend 29 bucks a month for that and I want all this stuff. It's like you have unrealistic expectations of what a consultant does or gets paid. If then we send the exact product these people have outlined and give them an opportunity at half the price they said and they don't purchase, again, we have a copywriting problem. We have an information problem. And it then allows us to save tons of time and money in that whole process. I did this process once. Uh, I was wanting to launch. We have podcast launch school, which helps people launch podcasts. And we do all sorts of behind the scenes support. And went through this process with our highest end clients that had said they wanted a podcast. Was picturing like a $500 a one-time like e-course. Went through this whole process. They said, we know you know how to do podcasts. We know you show up, you do your recording, and then your whole team takes it over from there and you do nothing afterwards. Will you just do a done for you podcast program? And I'm like, oh my gosh. And it was like, how much would you you pay for that? And they're like, I don't know, like $20,000. I'm like, are you kidding me? So I sent an email and I did it for 18,000 with 9,000 due right away and had four people purchase it in that first day. So then I went and hired a whole sound engineering team, made got all of our processes together. And then we were able to have a done for you podcasting option. But then we also now have, you know, a la carte support services. We have an e-course that goes along with it from everything we learned. So this process just helps you build exactly what your audience wants at the price point they want. So you aren't guessing. Yeah, this is, I mean, entrepreneur 101 for sure. Yeah. But I have been around a lot of entrepreneurs that don't do this. Primarily tech entrepreneurs that are like, oh, build it and they will come. A lot of the entrepreneurs. A lot of the startup accelerators will, they're like, you need to talk to a hundred people and figure out if what you're building actually works. But this is interesting. You have your own audience and the sort of steps are actually very thoughtful as well as informative. And, and I think people, I think people really, especially in your audience, if they're, if they follow you and if they like you, I think they appreciate like, oh, what do you want us to build? Right. Of course, you know, Steve Jobs, notwithstanding, when he said they don't know, people don't know what they want. I think when it comes to things like this, when you're building a community and you're like specifically, you know, making people better at a certain thing, this is the, a great way to go. And I think anyone that's got a business talking to customers more and more when it's not about a problem or not about selling them, just I, I wish we do more of that. Because when I have done that in the past, it's just been a goldmine. And, and again, I think people really appreciate it. I think it's a thoughtfulness, you know. Very thoughtful. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when, when you really think about the business you choose to build, for us, we say that we help people build thriving practices they absolutely love. And so to me, there's just two parts of it, that we want it to thrive, we want it to do well, and we want you to love your business. And, and so you know, whether that's private practices or any business you know, that people are listening to, like we get to build something that hopefully affects other people. And so if we're 
building a business that makes us feel like we're in the quote grind, we need to change some things. Like life's too short to be in the grind, especially if you're designing that. Like you're a terrible boss if you've created a job for yourself that you hate or that is just too stressful. And that's where there's lots of techniques of outsourcing or automating things that can remove those things from you. But I think that we need to be mindful of the things that maybe a year or two ago resonated with you may not resonate with you anymore. It's okay to shift away from you know different projects or different audiences and try to build new things if that's no longer resonating. How do you get people to outsource things? How's, I have this problem. That's, that's why I'm curious. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs have it. You mentioned, I think before, like, oh, I could do it better. I could do it this, I could do it that. Mm-hmm. What are some of the techniques that allow people to sort of give up that control, put, you know, outsource to things? Like I always say, this is something I'm the only one that could do or can someone else do it? Then I should have someone else do it. Yeah. When I'm consulting with someone and we're working on this, first, I acknowledge that it's normal to feel like that I'm not sure I want to do this. So just normalizing it. Oftentimes there's that first phase of a business is a lot of bootstrapping. You know, it's a big gamble. You're keeping your costs down. That's how for a lot of entrepreneurs it is. And you're working a ton and you're hoping that it's going to be successful. And then it has some level of success. And the thing that got you to where you're at is the opposite of what you need moving forward. The company then needs your creativity, your vision, your attention, not your bootstrapping. So normalizing, you're you're in a transition. Just like any transition in life, it's going to be rocky. There's going to be learning. There's going to be bumps. You're going to screw things up. And that's all normal. So when that happens, they don't feel like they're to blame. I mean, they may be to blame, but it's like, you know, they're not a bad person because, you know, things fell apart or they did a bad hire. So I start there. Then usually I have them for a week create what we call their hate list. The things in your week that you just hate in your personal life and in your professional life. So for example, I realized I hate mowing the lawn. I could do it. I I could do that every Saturday in the summer. I live in Michigan though, and it snows like nine months a year. And so on Saturdays, I want to be out swimming, paddleboarding, doing things with my family. And so to pay the neighbor kid 50 bucks a mow, which is so overpriced and good for him for being an entrepreneur, the kid bought himself a brand new like black truck to pull it around. I know he wrote it off, Uh but it's like, okay, I get my Saturdays back. And, And so finding that hate list of like, what can we start with that you hate for a lot of people that's email, uh, for a lot of people also email feels very personal and there would be some logistical things. So step one, hate list or step one would be really acknowledging, normalizing step two, making that hate list. Step three, then just looking for someone that can take on just a couple of those things. So is it an hour a week to comb through your email? And then whenever you hire someone, I recommend people have a daily 15 minute meeting with them. You don't want to have an hour meeting once a week because there's going to just be too many things that they either did their best guess or they just didn't do. I'd much rather have you have just like a quick meeting with them to do a quick check-in, have them lead the meeting, and then just CC them on everything you want them to be doing in the future. So my assistant knows that if I BCC her on something, it's almost always because I thought she could have answered it with what I've said, or in the in the past, I haven't trained her on that. And hey, I want you to start you know answering these types of emails in the future. And then she keeps a library of that. And over time, you know that process gets smarter and smarter. We create standard operating procedures that can be handed off to other people. And then you know, over time, then that person's going to probably outgrow that position. So I say, you know, what do you like doing about your job? What do you hate doing about it? 
And then where do you see yourself growing? So they may want extra training and to move into a different arm of the company. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's the struggle and we all have it. And I'm just thankful that, that you spent the time to talk with us about it. Uh, can't wait to read the book, you know, good luck um, with the podcast. Sounds like a great thing. If you're into, you know, have you have a practice of any kind, you should probably check it out. So Joan, I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for, mm. for being on the show. Jared, it's been so fun to do this and such thoughtful questions and really appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.